I'm Mary. I'm Nolan. I'm Lakita Ann. And I'm Austin. We are your hosts, and this is Your World, Your Money. We will be talking real money with real people in a real way. Because everyone deserves the opportunity and tools for freedom, financial or otherwise. Your World, Your Money is brought to you by Hangar Studios, a New York City-based recording studio, and Global Thinking Foundation, a global nonprofit working toward financial freedom and equality for all. Hi there, money people. This week, we were going to start a conversation about ethical spending, also known as conscious spending. However, there was this magical little thing called a presidential election. I'm not sure if you heard about it, but that's kept our hearts and nerves just a little busy. And no matter which camp, quote unquote camp, you are in, these days have been the kind of days where you sit on the edge of your seat with anticipation, just kind of wondering what's going to happen to the democracy as things progress. So as soon as we had an election resolution, I mean, ish, we'll see what goes to court where, we then had an annual event because our foundation has one every year. Kind of goes with the annual, doesn't it? Every year, our foundation has this big annual event with speakers from major banks, NGOs, MNOs, universities. You get the idea. Pretty much an event full of complete and total party crashes. Just kidding. The events are actually very fun and held at our home office in Milan. So obviously, as you can imagine, Italians... They do parties right. And not only does everybody learn a lot, we really do have an absolute bash. This year, our annual event focused on two primary topics. And those were the addition of some new SDGs to our core foundation SDGs and the Green New Deal. Fortunately, I don't have to bore everyone to death with the finer details of a Green New Deal in Europe and the United States. Trust me, you might fall asleep. So instead, I'm going to talk about SDGs because they relate to our upcoming guest that is truly incredible. And also, they're just very near and dear to my own heart. So first, what is an SDG? The SDGs, if you're not already familiar, are the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. That's where SDG comes from, Sustainable Development Goal. And those are for the Agenda 2030. There is so much to break down there. But let's start at the top. So Agenda 2030 is the action plan adopted by the United Nations member nations in 2015 to build a better, more equitable, equal and climate neutral planet by 2030. The action steps to get us there are these 17 sustainable development goals. And each of the individual goals has between 15 and literally 40 quote-unquote targets, which are very specific. And again, there can literally be up to 40. And they cover targets for nations, MNOs, and those are multinational organizations, businesses, nonprofits, and even non-governmental organizations. Essentially, if you are somebody that cares about equality, equity, and a climate-friendly planet, you will find a target that you can reach in the Sustainable Development Goals. It's actually pretty cool like that. 
So as a foundation, our core, like OG SDGs have always been four, five, and eight. So that's quality education, which is number four, gender equality, which is number five. That's probably the one you've heard the most of in the United States. And decent work in economic growth, which is number eight. <laughs> I always manage to say that one wrong, so I'm just happy I said it right this time. Decent work in economic growth. Woohoo! So as our annual event was happening last week, we had lots of conversations as a foundation and we wanted to add more SDGs so that we could do more bigger and better work. So we added on three more SDGs and this is done so that our work can really encompass all that is necessary to fight for a better world. So as a foundation, Global Thinking has now added SDGs 1, 10 and 17. And because I assume that you just know those off the top of your head, I'm going to tell you what they are. So <laughs> number one is no poverty. That doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. Number one is no more poverty. Number 10 is reduced inequalities. Now, number 10 has a lot inside of it. It's one of those goals that, again, has literally like, I think, 32 targets. It's got a lot. And number 17 is partnerships for the goals. And that one, it also is very straightforward, but essentially number 17 is saying, whatever it takes, we're going to add our STGs together, we're going to add our collective efforts together, whatever partnerships need to happen to reach these goals, we're going to do it. So these goals have been added to the Global Thinking Foundation work on economic abuse and financial literacy, because we believe they're essential to our global work, but also because they go hand in hand with our prior goals and our goals to do even bigger and better things. So for example, as I'm sure you can probably infer, financial literacy in eradicated economic abuse are, at least in our minds, some of the most powerful tools to end poverty and reduce inequalities. So that was a lot of information. And that was a lot of like very top level, literally United Nations, multinational organizations kind of information. So now we're going to get a little bit more specific when we talk to our upcoming guest. I know that was a lot of information on some really big goals that thankfully are numbered and a very green deal that is apparently going down in Europe and a not so green deal that is being discussed in the United States, only on occasion though, depending on the political climate. So covering all of that information, we're now going to try and bring it all home. So today we are very, very lucky to have one of our premier speakers from our annual event, Erma Manakur, with us to talk about her session at the annual event and walk us through how we can put these conversations into perspective. Hi, Erma. I know you're crazy busy these days. Thank you so much for being here. I have one very important question. Tell me how I'm supposed to say your last name. I'm certain I'm saying it wrong and I don't want to be that person. No, absolutely. You're fine. It's Manukur. You said it correctly. Manukur. Okay. I'm going to like be sitting over here. You guys listening obviously can't see me, but I'll be sitting over here like trying to say it in my head. Manukur. Okay. You know, we'll practice a few more times. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We're incredibly lucky to have you. Um, so start us off by sharing with our American audience what it is that you do and what your speech at our global annual event was all about. 
Well, first, let me say I'm delighted to, to greet you and your listeners. And I'm talking to you from Paris, France, where I've been living abroad for the past 20-some years. What do I do and who am I? I'm an international consultant who works in the area of social and behavior change. So I'm always looking at COVID-19 and all the discussions coming out. And I've spent most of my life working either in Africa, the Middle East, or South Asia. What else can I tell you about myself? I'm also currently an adjunct professor at the Sciences Po here in France. And I'm a retired UNICEF employee. So I work for the United Nations for a number of years as well. So I have one very important personal question that is just, you know, everyone is, needs to know this. If you could be an ice cream flavor, what would you be? What would it be? We're so curious. Rum raisin. <gasps> Wait, why rum raisin? That's so yummy. Because it's creamy and it's it's got mixtures of different kinds of things. It's not just, you know, we're talking about diversity, right? So it's got that to it. You have the, the base, which is the, the milk and the cream and all of that. But then you add ru- the raisins in it and a little rum, of course. You always have to have a little alcohol. And that always combination is delicious. <laughs> Couldn't agree more, especially on the rum. I'm a Caribbean baby. Like that is where it's at. That's where it's at. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. I just wanted to toss a little bit of, you know, lighthearted <laughs> fun in there. Well, in, in terms of the, the conference itself, I was asked to, to really look at the whole issue of diversity and inclusion in education and think about it from the lens of the COVID-19. Because we hear a lot of discussions around diversity in the United States. There's been a lot, as you know, in terms of Black Lives Matter, a number of different kinds of issues. But the idea was also to think about those topics within COVID-19 because it's, it's, it's changed the, the discourse. It's forced us to deal with issues that may have been there already, but the, the cracks in the in the foundation became very evident with uh, COVID-19. And thus, my talk was trying to look at that when we talk about education, when we talk about young people, when we talk about children, when we talk about adolescents. What was the implications of all of that, given the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic? Keeping on from what you were just saying about COVID-19 perspective and the work that you've been doing, You work very much in this global setting and thinking of communities and nations and and individuals from a very, it sounds like top level perspective, like that kind of 30,000 feet in the air look. And one gap that you highlighted in your speech that I really, really enjoyed was this drastic difference between rural and urban. And so I'd love to hear from you how you think this global trend plays out in the U.S., regarding your speech at the annual event. So, you know, about COVID-19, education, and all of this stuff. Well, I think what we've been seeing, at least from where I sit here in Europe, watching the news and and following the discussion, I think what one sees in the U.S., oftentimes when you think of the U.S., one has kind of the urban image in their mind. People live in the cities and so forth. And I think it's very easy to forget that there's a significant number of the population that don't live in environments like that. So when one is talking about COVID and some of the kinds of things to do, such as distancing, well, if you're in the countryside, 
you probably have a lot of space. It's very <laughs> different easy. than the person in New York City in a high rise. At the same time, we in, in, in the education field, as many schools went into school closures, the assumption was, okay, immediately we can go into distance learning. We're going to do digital. But it assumed everybody had access to that digital technology or had a good internet connection to make it happen. So on the one hand, where school systems were responding and trying to meet the needs of education because we knew that children still needed to have that structure, if you will, I think it got forgotten that there were people that would fall through the cracks just because they didn't have the same kind of access. And so I think one of the challenges we've seen with COVID-19, when schools began to reopen, even in the U.S., you had children coming back to school that weren't able to do the online courses. They weren't able to do the online classes. So they come in in a way disadvantaged to their peers Mm, who were able to have that discussion with the teacher and so forth. And I think it just means in the U.S., like a lot of other countries, We're so used to thinking of these issues when it's low and middle income. So you don't expect it in high income countries. And I think that has been the shock for many Americans, just like many Europeans. They weren't expecting to have some of the same issues they hear about from people in poor countries. And yet we were experiencing that here. And I think in the United States, you saw it as well. I think that's such an important thing to highlight. And I I love that you mentioned it because... One of our previous guests on another episode was a school counselor, and she was telling me how this high school in Indiana had over 6,000 kids. And I was like, whoa, that's a lot of kids at a high school. And then she explained to me, just like you're highlighting that, well, these kids were coming in from sometimes different counties because it's just so spread out and you have all of these kids coming to this school and you know some kids it takes 30 minutes by driving to drop their kid off at school and not like New York City driving traffic but just like genuinely driving in in open country so I I really love that you highlighted that and something that it makes me think of as well I know that in rural communities, because I think about my dad, my dad grew up on a farm. He was a farming boy. You know, he learned how to ride horses and till and all of that stuff. And something that he would always tell me is that, you know, he would always, he was working by the time he was 13, 12, 13. You know, he was out working with the family and when he got a little bit older, he would work with the family. And then he would sometimes go and work in the town that he lived outside of. And I think here that there's potentially a really interesting point on earning gaps and working early, especially in this rural urban dichotomy. So do you see a more severe pay gap between urban and rural areas potentially rising in the US? Or are there other trends that you see in there that could be potentially really important to this conversation or for an American to think about? Well, I think in the U.S., I think one has, and I like the way you position the question, because I think one has to look at both things simultaneously. If you look only at the rural, you'll miss it. If you look only mm-hmm. at the urban, you will miss it. And it's really looking at the two of them in terms of how it's rolling out. One of the advantages I see sometimes with people who are in rural settings is a more of an independence because if they're on a farm, for example, they're growing things. They had access to food compared to the person in the city who's dependent upon a supermarket to get Mm -hmm. what they need. 
So there's pluses and minuses. Or heaven forbid, toilet paper. Or heaven, right. And then there's alternatives. Other cultures have told us there's alternatives to toilet paper that we forget. But um, but I think it's it's one. I think it's the types of jobs that are available. And I think what COVID-19 did for a lot of parents who were working parents, for a lot of them, school was, was the nanny. They could take their child to school. They could go to work. And then, but once the schools were closed, those same parents were having to choose. Either they stay home because now they have to take care of the children. What are they going to do? I think in rural areas, there may have been some of the same kind of issues, but they probably weren't as obvious as they were in the urban setting. So I think there's going, I think there's been a financial impact and earning impact, both in urban areas and in rural areas. The question is, who had a better or even had a security blanket? Which ones would you more likely find it? My suspicion would be it would probably be in the rural areas. Mm, that's really interesting. In terms of the safety net that people had, because they had other kinds of things. They didn't have as many potential opportunities or things available. So it's more in, I have to depend on yeah. myself. And I think in urban settings sometimes, because there's so many things around you, it might be easier sometimes to say, okay, I'll do, I won't worry about it myself because I can go over here and pick it up. But when you have to go a distance, you don't try to think about it in that same way. So I think it, it's also a way of, of how people were thinking about COVID and work and what it meant. I mean, you hear now lots of people saying we have to get back to work. And it, it's amazing to me that in the U.S., that, that that sense of we have to get back to work, we have to make the economy, because it seems that so many people are on that cutting line, mm. that if they're not working, they fall off. And you never think about it until something like this happened. We're talking about people, as I said earlier, who never thought something like that would be happening to them. They're used to reading about it in somewhere in Africa mm-hmm. or somewhere else in Asia or somewhere, but they're not used to having to deal with some of those same issues at home. Yeah, they think maybe like this will never, this will never happen to me. You know, I live in the United States or like this kind of mentality. Well, what I was going to say is, and I think one of the things that complicates what has been happening in the U.S. is you have so many populations within the population. And it gets us back to our discussion around diversity. You have so many Mm. different groups. And I think a lot, if you think about a lot of their approaches in the COVID-19 response was assuming everybody was homogeneous and and the United States is heterogeneous. So it means you have to think about who you're trying to talk to and what's the best way to approach them. What's the best way to get that information? If I'm in a marginalized community in an urban setting, that's very different conversation you're going to have with me if I'm in a farm somewhere and the next neighbor about 50 miles away. How you, what you talk to me about, how you position the discussion. I think that is some of the things when you look back on lessons learned, I think that we'll take out of COVID-19, whether it's in the United States or whether it's in Europe, is the fact that in our populations, we need to think about who the people are we're trying to reach 
and what's the best way to have that conversation with them. From an education point of view, same thing holds. If you think about the fact that when people decided to go to distance learning, what do you do with a child that has a hearing impairment? What do you do for a child who has a visual impairment? A lot of the things were put together but it kind of assumed children are children, so you just give them the information. But if you haven't taken the time to say that same information, we have to have different kinds of formats, you can miss it. The intent was good. The, the energy and the drive, the will was good. But you miss a child. You miss a whole group. Yeah, this actually takes us to a question I had for a little bit later on, but I think is so perfect right now. So one of the things that you spoke about in your speech that I think for the United States is just something that we're starting to realize, but we, we missed for quite a few slash almost all the months of the pandemic. And that was what this anxiety and stress and isolation and depression that parents slash adults are talking about. But how is that going for kids? And one of the questions I wanted to pose along with just like kids in general was, especially kids with disability, because you were just mentioning that. And when it comes to education and you have all of these kids in maybe a more rural setting or even maybe an urban setting that whether it's a learning disability or a physical disability, we could it covers the whole gambit. And they're also going through a lot of anxiety, stress, isolation, depression, because they used to see their friends right. every okay. single day exactly. for eight hours a day, right? So... What do you think families or, or people around an educational setting, uh, I'm thinking maybe like volunteers or TAs or parent organizations, I'm thinking like these people that are just around the educational setting and parents, what can they do to support kids that are going through these, well, I mean, all kids are going through anxiety and stress right now. Mm -hmm. Like, what, what can we do? Is there a best practice? Have we seen it done well somewhere? I don't know that there's a best practice yet, but I think there's a couple of things, and you touched on it. I think a lot of our emphasis was what was the school going to do and how to prepare the teachers. But there are a lot of other people around the teacher, the teacher's aid, mm -hmm. their local community groups. And, it, and I think it's a question of when there's issues like this, how can you engage other people in a community to come together in support of children? I mean, if um, for all the other things that one can argue over, people rarely argue over children. It's one true, of those er that's a group that everybody wants to be seen on the good side of. So it's how do you get teachers aid? What are the things we can ask them to do? They will know where children are. They will have been like the teacher involved that allows them to focus more on the psychosocial part, the anxiety. A lot of times parents are anxious. So the children pick up from the parents thinking if everybody's at home, that anxiety is almost a contagion among them. Who's the person who can call and talk to the parent or the parent can call and say, what am I going to do? I have my child with me. I've got to this. I'm supposed to be on a Zoom call. What do I do? Who can they talk to? Or who's available for children? Are there ways, whether it's with WhatsApp or is there a way that those children who can use that mechanism have it to talk to each other. Those who cannot, can, is there visual things are, that one can put on for, for example, children who are hearing impaired, you can do things visually. 
children who are visually impaired, you can look at how can you record things. But it's how do you do the instruction? So it's just a recording. How do you, so it's it, it's really saying how do we collectively think outside the box? Get the teacher aid with the teacher. Get the parents. Get the grandparents. There are people in communities that are there that have time, and they still may do these things and still respect the COVID prevention and mitigation measures. They still can physically distance. They still can do other kinds of things. But it's ha a child's, I think we forget sometimes that children pick up on the emotions of adults. So when we're fearful, when we're anxious, they feel it too, but they don't have the outlet they would have had in the past where they're playing, they're using that energy to get it out. So there's those small things we can do. And I think it's helping parents also have access to someone they can talk to, whether it's a hotline or a person who's just making, you know, periodic calls to the family that they can talk to around what they're dealing with. Same thing with children and adolescents, of course, they're going to be talking and trying to engage with each other. And it's how can you get adolescents to think about reaching out to their peers who may be having an impairment of some kind. We know that adolescents, they listen and talk to each other. So it isn't an adult having that conversation. It's how can we give them the sense of what they can do to talk to each other, engage with each other. Yeah, maybe giving them that sense of normalcy that they had before just by being able to talk to somebody exactly. their own age. Because, you know, how many kids have a brother or sister that's what? A, f a few months different? It's not possible. So, yeah, I think that that's such an important thing to highlight. And you were talking about a lot of different aspects that I really want our listeners to, to follow along with. So I want to take this opportunity to give you a moment to share about the social the social ecological model that you mentioned in the your speech during the annual event and just kind of uh, explain what that is to a listener and how they can think about it and then after you explain it uh, what gaps do you see are the biggest in the United States when you talk about human behavior because we are social animals we need to think about it from a lot of different dimensions so you can ask me, Irma, to do something, but you have to take into account I'm a part of a family and how my family thinks and what my family interacts and says influences how what I may or may not do. And then you have to take into account that my family and I live in a certain community and how my friends, my neighbors, the people that I see, how they're reacting might influence what I do and what I do might influence what they do and think. And then the, that's three levels, right? It's the individual, the interpersonal, the community. And then there's the systems around them, schools, jobs. When people go to work, when I go to school, I engage in, with teachers and systems that are organized a certain way that influence what I will say, what I will learn, what I will remember, what I will do. And then the last level is just the larger enabling environment, the larger society, the rules, the regulations, 
what you can and can't do. You saw that with COVID. You saw initially some people trying to do some things. People would talk to their friends, and if their friends were wearing a mask, they'd wear a mask. Then you see communities saying yes, no. Then you start hearing about what was happening in schools and in the workplace. And then the government said, you will do this. So you've got five different levels that can influence what, what I do as an individual. It's not only what I think and feel personally, but all those other interactions make a difference on whether or not I'm going to say yes or whether or not I'm going to say no. And even if I answer, if I'm going to continue it. Mm -hmm. So that's the idea with the social ecological model is whenever you think about behavior and human behavior, think about it socially. We're, we are parts of many different groupings in our lives that influence what we think and what we feel. That's the idea behind it. And to answer your second question in terms of COVID and education, I think we saw initially a lot of discussion around the individual, what, what Irma or what you, Mary, should do. But then as the discussion continued, you began hearing people talk about how what you do can help somebody else. They were trying to tap into that sense of that larger network around you, the friends and neighbors. By you doing what you're doing, you can protect somebody in your family. So it's more than just you. And then they started talking about what different communities were doing, which gave a sense of we're not in this alone. This neighborhood in New York is trying to do this just like that neighborhood. So you don't feel like you're the one person out. And then school started saying, this is what we're going to do to contribute. So you see how it builds. And I think when you look at where perhaps the U.S. may have not really considered everything is they tried to make for a long time so much of it just on the individual alone without thinking about the fact that an individual is a part of a social unit, a family, is a part of a community. And it's how do you get people that are thinking on the same wavelength, how do you bring them together to find each other? And I think you're seeing more of that now. But that was some of the, maybe the early communication was, if I just tell you the facts, you'll do it. And we know that's not true. People know a lot of things, <laughs> but that doesn't explain why they, it doesn't, definitely you need to have knowledge, but it's not sufficient of itself to make you do something. And I think COVID has taught us that. And I think when, when children in schools began to see their, their peers doing things, they were more likely to do it. And I think that sense is what now you hear discussions, at least from what I can see here in Europe, that's what I see going on in the U.S. where people are trying to see, see, they're doing it over there. If they can do it, so can we. And initially it was, let's just do it on our own. We'll just do it by ourselves. And I think that puts you in competition. And it isn't about competition. It's how can we cooperate? How can we work together? I think that's what you hear more of now at community levels. And that's, to me, when you talk about COVID, when you talk about education, if you get communities on board, they can move systems and they can move governments. Wow, I could not possibly agree more with that. Thank you so much. And it's very true of the American culture, isn't it? To have this very like individual way of going about things. Because as you were saying this, I was thinking about here in New York City where I am, I'm in Manhattan, and when I think about the communities that have come together to 
more or less have a communal take on COVID. So obviously they're still following the laws, just like you said, social distancing and all of this. But, you know, they still had that communal aspect. Every time I heard about one of those, it was in a some kind of cultural community. So think like Spanish Harlem or, you know, parts of Brooklyn. It really was these cultural communities coming together that might have had a slightly different cultural perception on the individual doesn't have to be alone in this. Mm -hmm. Because I think, at least personally looking in on American culture, it is very, it emphasizes the individual so much, which is powerful in a way, but also in COVID, just like you said, I imagine it can go very, well, very awry. And I think that comes from the whole pioneering spirit of the establishment of the country. When you had to go out there and they're going across the country and they're going into a, what is perceived to be the wilderness, although there were people there already, they're, <laughs> they're going out. And so that sense of pulling yourself up by your bootstrap, I think is a part of the American ethos. But what people forget also though, as a part of the American ethos is the sense of community. Think about Thanksgiving. It is probably the one holiday in, in America where you acknowledge friends and family. That says community is there. We just don't talk about it like others do. We kind of take it for granted. And I think what COVID-19 said is you can't take it for granted. And when we saw people just trying to do it by themselves, they didn't necessarily turn out well. <laughs> Our concept of community in the past was always geographical. So we had to be in the same geographical area. But now that's not the case. So a community that you're relating to that are influencing you don't have to be physically around you, but they still can have an effect on how you think and what you're willing to do. I'm amazed by the COVID behavior sometimes that we saw where people were getting their information, not from where they were here in France, but they're talking to their family members in the U.S. or they're talking to a close friend in another country. And that's where they're getting what they're going to do or not going to do. So it's a comparison. What did you hear on your side? Well, I heard this. What did you hear on your side? And now we've got to sort out between us. So I think it's made our lives more complex, but also more interesting. And I think that's the challenge that I see for education. I, that's why I think diversity and inclusion is so, so important in education, because I think if you think about the future and the world is increasingly small, the more young people, children understand other cultures, other ways of seeing the world, other ways of identifying problems, the better prepared they are to deal with the challenges will be. You could not be more right about that. I think about just here and where I am, and one of my best friends is in China, in mm -hmm. central China, and I talk to her every, well, not every day, but, you know, mm -hmm. fairly often. And then one of my other best friends is in Italy, in Milan, and, you know, that's where mm -hmm. the whole European pandemic started yeah. and hearing about how they're going about it. And then another one of my best friends is in Russia. Like, it just, I, yes. that's such a poignant thing yes. to highlight that while it might be geographically dispersed, we are in this era where, yes. no, I talk to three different countries multiple times a week, if right. not multiple times a day. I, thank you so much. That's so important to highlight. So... In the U.S., we have public schools and private schools, especially in metropolitan centers like New York City, Chicago, L.A., all of this stuff, where diversity, inclusion, and classrooms are 
almost completely determined by household income level. And I want to kind of pose to you, are there any things that we can act upon or implement that could drastically change a status quo that's very reinforced by where people live within a city? And I'm thinking like school districts and stuff like that. I think it is time maybe to re-examine school districts and how they're set up. There's, I think it's an opportunity as well to look at, even if people aren't in the same school district, is there a way that there can be more interaction between school districts? Okay, you may not be able because I can imagine there are going to be some resistance. I'm in a higher income bracket. I want my children to have access to A, Y, and Z, and that's okay. But the question is, how do you help that child who may be living in a poorer side of town who has the potential just like this other child, but they don't have the same opportunities. They don't have the same exposures. So what's the way to bring that closer together? So each one appreciates the other. I think my concern sometimes the way the school districts are, are people end up growing up in silos and they end up with perceptions of the other that aren't true, that sometimes are based on stereotypes, and it's because they don't interact with each other. They never have an opportunity to see that the child that went to this school and the child that went to that school, they have lots of things in common. Yes, there are differences. Let's not minimize differences, but there's a lot of commonalities. And I think that's where it becomes very interesting when you have school boards who are courageous to look at these things and say, how can we do it differently? We're not necessarily going to get into a big fight about the district, but there are things we can do. Can we bring schools together where they do things jointly? Can they have uh, projects? Can they have opportunities where they, they're put in positions to interact with each other? They're put in positions to try to have a better understanding of that other child and vice versa so that we see where the commonality is. Yes, we'll see the differences, but that makes us richer, I think, as a country. I think what gets lost sometimes when I'm watching the news in the U.S. is that people forget the richness of the diversity that's there, they, the richness of it. And they look at it as maybe there's something wrong. We should all be alike. And the answer is absolutely not. I think if the U.S. is to maintain itself as a a key thought leader in the world, some uh, a country that people, they need to use where its strength is and not see it as a weakness. And I think that's where education is so, so important. So exchange programs where children get an opportunity to go live in another culture, go live in another, they don't even have to leave the U.S., <laughs> they can go to other parts of the country. Uh, take a child who's grown up all their life in New York City and send them to Missouri to spend some yeah. time working with someone on the farm to understand what that lifestyle is, to understand the possibilities. Send a child who's in South Carolina to go to on an American Indian reservation, live with people. There is so much. In the U.S., I mean, the thing about the U.S. is it's such a huge country, and it's so different from the East Coast to the West Coast. Just going across the Mississippi line is, <laughs> yep. is an eye-opener. And it's giving people, and children especially, because I think change comes 
with exposure. And I think the more children are exposed to different kinds of aspects of what is an American, the better American they become. I think just as you're saying this, how we have such an emphasis on studying abroad or exchanging, you know, across the ocean. But I love this idea of just creating this culture of complete comfortability with exchange within the United States, because you're completely right. And you highlighted it even because I think the thing that really stands out from what you're saying to me is that when you're in a silo, just like you said, you're in your school, you're in your community and you're in this silo, no matter where it is. I was picking on Indiana Mm -hmm. before. So, you know, you're in this silo in Indiana and you exchange to another school or another community. Of course, that increases your knowledge of America and, you know, other cultures and other kids. And it also gives you the ability to see what's possible because I think about so many kids that are in silos and they and yes they're like oh I can be the vice president but they don't see themselves as you know a CEO or a CFO or they don't see them because they just they never get to be exposed to this in a way that says no this is in fact completely possible for you it's not exposure that says this is a thing no no this is possible so I, I I really like the idea of shifting that it's like no, let's exchange within our own culture. Let's exchange within the United States. So there's things like very good things you can do similar to that. I've given exposure, of giving children an opportunity to see something else is possible. And I think you're right. People will talk about being president, but why not be a CEO? Why not be the next uh, Bill Gates? Why not be the next Oprah Winfrey? Why not? There's all these other possibilities out there. And it's giving children (laughs) the opportunity to see that. I think what many Americans forget is when you're abroad, in the U.S., people always think of hyphens. You're Afro-American. You're this American. You're always putting the hyphen. When you're abroad, what people see isn't an American. Oftentimes, we sound alike the way we do things, our mannerisms, it's American. They don't see all the hyphens. We put the hyphens in. And that's just simply my point of saying, that's why it's important to understand your own country. I bet if you talk to most people on the East Coast, they've never been West. And if you talk to a lot of people on the West Coast, they've never been East. And, and everybody jumps over Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, But those are rich. There are things there that you don't even think about. What about Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota? People study it in school, but how many people have ever been there? There's just so much because it is such a large country. That's so powerful. Because, And I was smiling. I, I know, obviously, our listeners can't see me. I was smiling so much as you were saying this, because just as a fun anecdote, like I was thinking about mm-hmm. this student that I went to school with, and her English was so good. And we were going to school in South Korea together. And I remember asking her, I was like, your English is incredible. Like, did you study it from a very mm-hmm. young age? Was the school really good? Did you study in the US? Like, just, you know, what, how did this happen? And she was like, oh, when I was eight years old, uh, I lived in the States. And I was like, oh, where did you live? You know, fully expecting this mm-hmm. Korean citizen, not even American citizen to say mm-hmm. LA or New York, or, you know, one of these Seattle, <laughs> maybe these big cities. And she goes, oh, no, I, I was in Kansas. And I was like, you were in Kansas? And she, she was like, yeah, I was in Kansas. That's where my uncle lives. And it just, it was this moment of this person in a foreign country with perfect English that is not American is telling me, yeah, I, I spent 
mm-hmm. nine years in Kansas. Right. Knows Kansas better than most people in New York City or Charleston, South Carolina or LA or Atlanta. And mm-hmm. it was just, I was smiling so much as you were saying that because I thought of that exact environment as you were explaining it. Well, exactly. And I mean, I think at universities, you hear about universities do their semester abroad or their semesters in, in, in the US and different communities. But I think you can take that much younger. It doesn't have to wait till you're in a university. It can be in high school, junior oh, high school. Absolutely. I think the U.S. has so much and it underestimates what it has. And I think the things that give it its strength is what they minimize. And sometimes the things that they try to say is their strength isn't really. And I just think if we can get people to think more towards trying to understand each other. And that's what schools are about. That's where children truly learn and they can surpass sometimes if they're in a family setting that doesn't do what it needs to do. That's where school makes the difference. It gives them another exposure. So I think COVID-19 with the school closures interrupted that, but it means, and I talked in my remarks in the conference about rebuilding better and transforming. I think that's what we're talking about as we get into this new normal. Because I think COVID's with us for a while. But we can do it better. We have people that are talented. We have energy. We have commitment. It's now looking at it. I said, here's a challenge and here's a response. And while we're doing it, here's some other things we're going to add to it. And this time, when we talk about rebuilding and transforming, it's bringing children and young people in the discussion as we do it. It isn't about just the adults coming up with great ideas, because I think We've seen with COVID-19 that adolescents and young people have some great ideas. Can we bring them in as a part of the problem-solving process in education, get their perspective on it? They're the ones going through it, so they can give us insights. The rest of us, we've been there and done it, but it doesn't mean we have the same experience that they have here and now. And so their understanding of it, their challenges to us, their ideas would be very useful, I think, with the PTAs, with the school board, is bringing young people at the table for that discussion. I think that is the most powerful way for us to end on that note. No, it's a pleasure. And I have to say, watching from Europe, we still watch. All eyes are on the U.S. And and just, just if people remember, there is so much beauty in the diversity that's there. And it's just making sure that that in the U.S. people remember to include others. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening in with Your World, Your Money. You can find us at ywympodcast.com and stay updated on Instagram at Global Thinking Foundation USA. Be sure to rate and review us, and you can reach us with questions or thoughts at hi at ywympodcast.com. Our thanks again to Hangar Studios and Global Thinking Foundation. Thanks, friends. Happy money making. See you next time.